0: The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Howdy, howdy, friends. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Fantasy NBA Today, your off-season fantasy basketball exploration pod. Always a pleasure to have you guys along. I'm your host, Dan Bespris, and this is a HoopBall presentation, hoop-ball.com, the website. You can follow HoopBall on Twitter, although I'll admit there isn't a whole lot going on uh, in the news feed right now since most folks are not actually playing fantasy, but we got some good stuff kicking around. They're at Hootball Fantasy on Twitter. Actually, the more interesting stuff right now that Hootball's got going on is the team coverage. The guys following the teams in the playoffs right now. For instance, we had a Boston Celtics podcast come out this morning. You can follow them over at Hootball Celtics. The Hootball Grizzlies guys are absolutely kicking you know what. They're at Hoopball Grizz, G-R-I-Z-Z. And then, of course, our buddies over at Hootball Gaming. Among so many others, please do check out some of our uh the Twitter feeds that settle under the hoop ball umbrella. I am at Dan Bespris. You guys knew that already. D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Let's dive in. We've got uh I'm not big into the recap stuff right now. Recap is pretty easy. Milwaukee bounced back, beat the hell out of Miami in the earlier of the two games yesterday. Bucks shot forty-nine percent, heat just forty. Uh Miami missed a ton of free throws, and Milwaukee just hit everything. I mean, they hit every three-pointer on the face of the earth in that first half. They put up 46 in the first quarter, I think. Giannis had 31, so he bounced back. Bryn Forbes got lava hot in yesterday's ball game. Pat Connaughton got lava hot in yesterday's ball. I mean, they were all just, they were dominant. And then the numbers were a lot higher until garbage time. I think the team scored like two points the last three minutes while the backups to the backups to the backups were just clanging away on both sides. Remember when the Heat traded for Nemanja Bielica? Don't really still know what the hell that was all about. They gave a Mo Harkless in that deal. Probably a contract thing. In any event, uh, we had the over in that ballgame, and that hit. Should have hit even easier than it did, but it went over and you had a couple buckets to spare. So that worked out nicely. From a pace standpoint, the things that you look at in that ballgame and try to draw a few conclusions is that the Bucks obviously way overperformed their number. They put up a buck 32. The expected number for them was more like 119 at the pace they were playing. Uh, but they hit 18 of their 20 free throws, so that was good. And then 22 three-pointers obviously did uh, a lot of the damage as well. And then on the other side, the Heat far underperformed their mark. They took a ton of free throws in yesterday's ball game, but didn't make them. Only 11 turnovers, so that wasn't too bad. But shot 40% from the field again. The Bucks are just laser-focused right now on the defensive end. I've got to think that there's a tiny lapse in that as they head to Miami. But still, this was one where I leaned Milwaukee, and I know that I was... A little bit out on an island. I was even actually at a, a very small uh, function this last weekend. There were like six or seven of us outdoors with uh, masks on. If you guys were curious, you guys don't need to know what it was about. It was actually more of a sad function than a good one. Uh, but I had someone talk to me like, well, you know, I'm all over the heat. I'm all over the heat. I'm like, well, let's not get nuts here because the bubble was so very different. And Miami was just was in such a special place in the bubble they were not that far from home not that it mattered once you're in it you're in it and then jimmy butler was just he was on another planet he was his focus was just different he was one of the few guys that really wanted to be there and now you got this bucks team that doesn't need that stuff they've got their home crowd teams that hit 85 percent vaccination they have their different uh restrictions are loosening they're having fun but this was a this was a a beatdown, and where I normally look at totals, and I've got to think this one well, total ended at two twenty three and a half. I bet it doesn't move a whole lot of off of that mark. As you look back at the number on this ballgame, this is where the recap to me is more important. It's it's on the betting side. The uh, the Heat probably finish should have finished somewhere around one hundred and ten because they got out rebounded sixty one to thirty six. So there was a pretty big uh, possessions gap between the two teams, something like almost 10 of them, really. Um, and then the fouls covered some of that stuff. Bucks had more turnovers than the Heat. Doesn't really matter how you got there. The point is, the uh, expected total on this ballgame was more like, it was pretty close to where it was, actually. I think, I think they went over by like one or two over the expected mark. So I, I still like the over... The thing that I, I'm concerned with as they move to Miami is do the heat, are the Heat able to slow Milwaukee down a little bit because they don't want to get out and run with the Bucks. Giannis just annihilates teams when he gets into the open court. So Miami's going to be trying to dictate the pace a little bit, and if they don't fall behind by 20, they won't have to chase quick buckets the whole ballgame. So I would look at an under as we uh, kind of glance ahead at their game three. I might also look at Miami in a bounce back after getting throttled Denver beat the hell out of Portland in the late game as well, 128-109. Nuggets shot 54% for the ballgame. They actually were at 66% for the first half in this one. It's actually remarkable. I had the under, and that was not a good wager in this particular ballgame. It's actually kind of amazing that the game was even close to the total. I think it went over by uh, about—it was at 227 when we got in on it, so it went over by 10 points There was a stretch in the second quarter where the teams combined to score 44 points in seven minutes. By the way, that pace, which is six and change points per minute, if you extrapolate that over an entire ballgame, you're talking about almost 300 points. Obviously, that wasn't going to keep up an entire ballgame. Jokic was brilliant again, 15 for 20 from the field, six of six at the free throw line. Uh he did have five assists in this ball game so that was a little bit better for him but you know, the nuggets were just they made everything they made everything the blazers actually weren't that terrible in this ball game dame was great uh the rest of the blazers were not particularly good so i guess it's not fair to say they weren't terrible cj was okay but he turned the ball over a bunch and really wasn't very good on defense and going into this second game i wondered could the blazers could the blazers roll the nuggets and we we should have given more faith to the idea that Denver was not going to just play dead, not with the way that that team is built, and as good as they are offensively, no matter who you put around Jokic, they're going to score some points. Interesting little footnote on this game, however, is that this was another one where, actually, I shouldn't say another one, because the first one, the the total really didn't belie the pace at all. This was a game where the total did, for the second game in a row between these two teams, the total belied the pace of the ballgame. Blazers had 21 turnovers, so if you're wondering about the shot discrepancy, that's where a lot of it fell, but and we figured there'd be more turnovers in this game after almost having none in their game one, but the foul shots also spiked considerably. Teams combined to shoot 58 free throws, and so that kind of wiped out some of the under gains that we were seeing because of all of the turnovers. So the Blazers were actually on, they, they were almost right on the mark for their number. They scored 109 based on some fuzzy math, they were probably expected to score somewhere between about 105 and 110 on how fast the game was moving, at least on their side. Uh rebound battle was relatively close in this one. Nuggets with 12 steals that led to some easy buckets as well. On the uh Denver side, they were actually expected to score about 113 and they went way over the mark thanks to not having a ton of turnovers, making 24 free throws. And hitting fifty-four percent of their shots overall, so they went way over the expected marker. So the fact that this game went over by ten, it actually tells me that the, the total was fairly accurate where it was. I know it's hard to believe, but with the Blazers expected to be around one hundred and eight, and the Nuggets expected to be around one hundred what did I just say? Thirteen or so. That would be two twenty-one. So this game actually probably should have gone under by about two to three possessions, but thanks to the Nuggets just being so damn good on offense, it uh, ended up going over by 10. So we'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, I would, I, I'm nervous about going back to the well, but I, I would consider doing it. As we look towards the game happening tonight, Boston is at Brooklyn. Brooklyn favored by nine, total of two twenty-seven and a half. and a half. And again, it's best to sort of go back and look at the previous meeting. These two teams had uh, a long layoff here. I don't entirely know why they played on Saturday. They don't go again until Tuesday, but whatever. Uh, first game had a total of 223. Brooklyn was favored by eight, and Brooklyn won at 104 to 97. It was an extraordinarily low-scoring game. I can't imagine that that happens again in this one. Uh, Brooklyn actually underperformed their mark. Not by a ton, because they were quite good at the free throw line and didn't have a ton of turnovers. But as you look at the number there, they probably should have been in around the 110 range. And then Boston, uh, who also struggled mightily in this one, they also should have been around the 110 range. So they underperformed by about 17. Uh, So this one was under by about 20. Problem is, uh, that still would have been an under on 233. By a lot. Well, the total's been adjusted down to 227 by 6. That first game pace had it around 220. I would expect at least one of these games to actually overperform their marker somewhere along the line. Because, you know, Brooklyn's not exactly known for their defense. I know Boston doesn't really have the centers to take advantage of Brooklyn's big weak link. uh, But I also don't expect the, the key guys to shoot as poorly as they did. You can play great defense, but everybody was bad. Like, everybody was bad with the exception of Kyrie Irving. He was the one superstar who had a pretty good ballgame. KD, 32 points, but it took him 25 shots to get there. James Harden, 21 points on only 13 shots, but it was mostly because of the free throw line. And then for Boston, Evan Fournier, 3 for 10. Uh, Jason Jason Tatum, 6 for 20. Kemba Walker, 5 for 16. One of those guys is going to be better in this ballgame. And that maybe that isn't enough to get us all the way there. Uh, but I would look at at possibly an over, not really into it. I think the number is actually relatively accurate if you're expecting the teams to play a little bit better on offense. Um, if the pace stays relatively close to what it was. I just I don't know that the teams are going to make massive adjustments on defense. So defensively, things worked in that first game. So you'll see some offensive adjustments, I think, by the two clubs, and that should push the number up a little bit. Can it get to 227? I don't know. And is it going to be enough to keep Boston in the ballgame? I also don't know. I I don't feel all that strongly about this one. Lakers favored by two on the road at Phoenix. They're going to be getting a lot of attention after playing really poorly in Game 1. They just weren't engaged. They weren't focused. I think this is going to be a tight one. So I think the line is relatively close. Uh, I would probably lean to the Lakers' side, the expectation that LeBron's team doesn't go down two games to none. But something's not right with Anthony Davis, and I don't know that something isn't 100% with LeBron. Those guys haven't looked right almost all season. They were close to right at the beginning of the year. AD wasn't even right. Anthony Davis hasn't looked okay this entire season. LeBron looked okay early in the year, but he hasn't looked right since the ankle stuff. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, total of 210 pretty accurately reflects the knockdown, dragout kind of ball game these two teams played on Sunday. Uh, Lakers got to the free throw line a lot; were unable to capitalize there. They shot just 61% at the free throw line. So again, we'll do a little fuzzy math. Lakers underperformed. This pace had them at about 104. If they were decent offensively, uh, Phoenix was somewhere in the neighborhood about 106. So they also underperformed. That puts the total at 210, which is, ta-da, exactly today's number. I think this one is spot on the money. 210 points. Ever so slightly lean to the under, if only because I think the Lakers do a better job of rebounding in this ballgame, and that keeps Phoenix off the offensive glass. And while I I don't think Chris Paul's 100% with the shoulder thing, so probably you're looking at another low-scoring game where maybe the Lakers are able to grind it out. My biggest fear is overtime, really. And then finally, Dallas and the Clippers, the late one. I mean, Lakers-Phoenix is also relatively late. Clippers favored by seven, total of 216. Uh, Clippers got beat up a little bit in that first one. By the way, they put the total right on the number from that first ballgame. Dallas 213, or excuse me, 113, Clippers 103. Uh, Dallas is pretty good in that ballgame. They actually should have been r- closer to about 101 based on the pace of that ball game. They uh, overperformed thanks to 17 threes and 50% shooting. The Clippers only five turnovers in the ballgame. That was very good. So they actually overperformed by a tiny bit. Um, my thought here is that the Clippers are going to play better defense. They're going to rebound better. They're going to play better defense. I don't know that the Mavs hit 17 threes on 50% shooting again here in game two. And for the Clippers, they might do a little better on the offensive side. Although I do think the turnovers are probably higher than five. The free throw number seems pretty repeatable. I would look at the Dallas Clippers under in this ballgame. Dallas doesn't like to run. Clippers, maybe they will a little bit. But you can see... Uh, Dallas' strategy. I mean, if they're if they're making buckets, that makes it harder for the Clippers to run. So one thing sort of cancels out the other, and as series move along, you do tend to see them slow down a little bit. Clippers will make defensive fixes here. Dallas did very well on the offensive side. Very well. And maybe they will again. Dallas is a very good offense. Luka's great. Uh, Maxi is a little dinged up, but I don't know that that is going to play a colossal role on the offensive side, but like, look, Dorian Finney-Smith, four threes, THJ, five threes, those things can happen, but those two guys probably aren't going to have 39 points on 22 shots between the two of them again. Probably get more out of Chris Stops, maybe, I don't know. I mean, he could get pushed around a little bit, and then Luca was about as good as you could hope in that first game as well. What about the Clipper side, as you're sort of sizing things up? Yeah, I guess Kawhi could be a little bit better, but these things have a way of leveling off a little bit where the clippers might shoot the ball a little bit better but they probably have more like 10 to 12 turnovers instead of 5. So I like the pace to take one click down in this ball game. Cuz I did say looking at it, eh, what did we put this thing? What did I just say this thing was at? Pace was actually slower than where we were at. I, I this is I think the under in clippers mavs is probably my favorite play of the evening. And by the way, maybe a little tip of the hand to those that are members of our WagerPass community, or even those that aren't. Okie doke, then. Uh, Shout out, by the way, to our buddies over at Manscaped.com and the Lawnmower 4.0. They actually have a whole lot of good, fun, interesting stuff going on at Manscaped.com right now. First of all, whatever you get over there, make sure to use promo code HOOPBALL20 to get 20% off and free shipping on whatever you get. But they've expanded their offers lately they have the performance package they have the uh i believe it's called the smooth package am i getting this right i may have to dig through some of the copy here and make sure we're getting that right uh that involves the uh traditional razor i mean you guys got to go just go to manscape.com i've got the whole list in front of me here uh the lawnmower 4.0 which is the the brand new lawnmower. It's incredible. It's got all the features of the old one. Plus, you can turn the light on and off. It also locks the power button. Uh, You've got the Ultra Smooth package. That's the the new one that I was forgetting the name of. That one has the actual razor uh, with shaving gel and replacement blades. The Performance package, that's got the all-in-one grooming kit, the shears. The Plow is the single-blade face razor. So they got all sorts of new stuff. They added the, the shaving gel. They added an exfoliant to the list. I love it. I really do. And they've been kind enough to send me almost all of these things just to try them out. They're just... They make a good product, man. I So I would tell all of you guys to check it out. Father's Day is coming up. Makes a fantastic gift. If you want to get a sideburn trimmer, maybe your dad looks like me and has a particularly hairy... uh. Chest, back, neck—like <laughs> every everything. Ashkenazi dad—I might refer to myself. Um, the lawnmower's been uh, a huge help. Um, I have—I'll let you guys know. So you're gonna have a, let my wife take the lawnmower to my back, just to see what happened. No pinching, pinch-free technology over at Manscaped.com. Again, that's promo code Hoopball20. Check it out immediately. And get 20% off and free shipping with our coupon code. You will be happy. Your dad will be happy. Some other dad in your life, whoever that might be, uh, they'll all be happy. They just got some really cool stuff and all these new things. This is a big time of year for the good folks over at manscaped.com. Mentioned that on today's podcast, we were going to talk a little bit about, uh, a little more, I guess I should say, about the things we were covering yesterday and Thursday. And I think most of you guys that are listening today, you probably heard those discussions. But very quickly here to recap, the yesterday-Thursday stuff, the the Monday-Thursday was diving into what do the numbers actually say in terms of when different players are worth holding versus worth cutting. Our analysis on yesterday's podcast was focused more on a 72-game season, which did make it a little bit tougher to break some of that stuff down. So what I wanted to do today, and I have two things still that I want to cover on this discussion, which all falls under the big hood of uh, ruthlessness in fantasy. Meaning, when when do we keep a guy? When do our, when are we ruthless and we just cast him off into the fantasy free agent ocean? We talked about on yesterday's show the cutoffs in a seventy-two game season. Or basically look, if you have a four week absence, you pretty much hang on to them if they're inside the top one hundred. You just sort of weather it. Maybe top ninety if you want to get if you want to get a little bit more ruthless. Six week absence, you were looking more in that 70, that, that sort of sixty to seventy five range, those guys stay on your team outside the top seventy five. You probably punt on a six weeker, and then eight weeks, or basically two months in a seventy two game season you're really only holding on to guys that are inside the top 50, and you might even push it more towards top 40. But I realize, or I realized, or both, that as we got to the end of yesterday's discussion, those numbers are not perfect in an 82-game season. Because we, we were, again, we, you have to fudge the numbers a little bit because we're on a podcast, so we can't get hyper-specific. But we talked about this year being basically around the neighborhood of 3.4 games per week, which came out to about a 21-week season. And in a normal 82-game season, it was more like 3.15, 3.2. It was like a 25, 26-week season. And I know that the difference in, a say, a four-week absence when you're talking about 0.3, 0.4 games a week is not that big. That's a one-to-two game discrepancy. But as you get into the six and the eight-week absences, now you're talking about more like two, three, four, five-game differences between the 72-game sprint and the normal 82-game season. And on top of that, it's a different percentage of the overall season missed. Although that part is a little bit less relevant because everything that we do in fantasy is compared against the other players' in the pool. So missing 20 games in an 82-game season, missing 20 games in a 72-game season, it sucks either way. It sucks a little bit less in an 82-game season, but uh, you're also comparing against whatever the average number of games played is for the entire league. So presumably, everyone in a 72-game season, we found out this year, missed about three weeks of basketball. So that came out to about 62, 61-ish games played this year. And in a regular year, if everybody missed about 10 games, that would be more like everyone missing more like three and a half weeks of basketball. So that tends to kind of wash itself out. The percentage side washes itself out a little bit. What doesn't is the pace of the games occurring. And they are slower in a longer season. So I want to go back quickly here. I don't want this to be the only thing we talk about today. But if, if it is, it is. Because again, we're in no particular hurry in our offseason now. Let's talk about not this most recent season, but the previous one. And this is something we actually probably covered a little bit during the last offseason. But I want to give it more attention today. Because... I think this is something we, we generally accepted coming into this last fantasy season as you usually hold when you're on the borderline. You usually exercise patience if you can. But this year taught us you can't always exercise patience. Sometimes you have to just be ruthless, even during the regular season. Because I know we do it during the playoffs. It's easy during the playoffs because you're only looking a, a week or two down the line. And if somebody's going to miss half of those games... Well, yeah, they're they're not going to get it done, especially if they're going to put zeros up for an entire week. So the 2019-2020 season, the names are going to sound mostly the same. But as you look in that range, and, and if memory serves, and I didn't run the numbers in on this all over again... But the average number of games played... Sorry, we'll go back two years because COVID shortened. The 18-19 season, the average number of games played was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 73 or 74 for the top 150 fantasy players. They generally missed about eight-ish games of a season, about 10%. Maybe a tiny bit more. So uh, two years ago, when you look at someone like Giannis, who played 72 games that year, he was number six by averages uh, he was number nine by totals but that's actually because a bunch of guys that played 80 games jumped in front of him it's not because his value was dramatically impacted by how many games he played i think he was ever so slightly above league average at 72 games so uh, maybe they did, maybe it was more like 10 games missed two years ago so what does that mean for our study today well, I just used him as an example at the top of the board because I wanted you guys to know that around 10 games was the average number of games missed. Let's look at guys who missed about four weeks of games. And as we talked about already, four weeks times about, well, let's see. We, uh, we're going to divide 82 games by about 25 weeks. Whoops. Bad math. We can try that again. Uh, it was 25 and a half. So, yeah, it was around 3.2-ish, 25 and a half uh, games per week. So if you take that and you multiply that by four weeks, you're going to get, whoops, I hit the wrong button on a calculator again. But suffice it to say, it's like 12, uh, it's about 13 games. (laughs) Here I am trying to do a calculator live on air and screwing it up. It's easier when I could just do it in my head, and it's a lot simpler. So a month-long absence for a player About 13 games in a normal 82-game pace season. And that would be a guy who played then 69 games. Two years ago, again, we're looking at these numbers. So let's look at a guy in the top 90 range that played about that many games. And that guy was Kelly Oubre on the Suns. And he was in... I don't care that he was an easy decision two years ago because he got hurt right at the end of the regular season and then sort of just missed games rolling out the rest of the way. You could take Trevor Ariza was uh two slots in front of him and he sort of bounced around a little bit doesn't matter. We're just talking about we're just using their names because they happen to be a guy in the range. I don't care about how their games were missed for this part of our discussion. So Ubre was number 88 on a per game basis, missed 13 games. He was about a half around back of that in totals. So once again, you're basically saying if someone's going to miss 4 games, or four weeks in any NBA season, they're probably worth holding if they were worth having on your team to begin with. I think the exception to the rule there are guys outside the top 100, where, again, our discussions right now are really focused on head-to-head leagues. Because in Roto, if a guy's putting up top at double-digit, if he's in the two-digit range, you're going to hang on to him pretty much whenever. Not, not all the time, but like 95% of the time, you're hanging on to him. In head-to-head... Ubre still put up enough stats. And again, I don't care about when he missed his games for this part of the discussion. You can just call him Player X. Was number 88. Missed four weeks, roughly, of the season. Oh, you know what? Maybe that was two years ago. I don't no, Last year he missed it at the end of the... That doesn't matter. Um, I'm getting my years crisscrossed here. Player X missed about four weeks worth of games. He was top 90 before that. He was top... 95 after that top 100 after that so he still was fantasy useful in a head-to-head league and if you can you hang on to that guy what about six weeks now things get a tiny bit more complicated someone in that same range we were just talking about Ubre, player x in the top 90 range missed 13 games what about if that same player, it was about 3.21 or so, times 6 is 19 and change games missed? Okay. So who was in the 63-game range uh, in that neighborhood of the ranking board? Nobody. So that doesn't help us very much. <laughs> there was literally no one in that range that missed about six weeks worth of basketball nobody not for good gravy there really weren't that many players in the NBA that missed six weeks worth of games uh in that rank well let, let's let's dig a little deeper I think we're we're moving off the board here come on find find someone for our discussion this is the downside to me doing this analysis live on air with you guys oh nuts well the closest guy we can find is all the way up at number 61. Or if we go down the board, the closest guy we can find is number 125. All right, well, we'll go to number 61, I guess, because we need an example of someone that missed about six weeks worth of basketball, and that was Zach Levine two years ago, who was number 61 on a per-game basis. And when you pull out six weeks of games, he falls to number 92. So that is actually a really big difference. Three rounds... And his value falls from uh, at sixty one. He's above the the average fantasy player in that group, uh, and in the nineties he's he's well below it. So if you took someone in the ninety range and applied that same factor to them, they fall way out. But in the sixties they still stayed in. So I think we're I, I think what we're finding here is that the cutoff isn't actually that different in a normal season than it was in a 72-game season. By a little bit, yes. By a little bit, because six weeks in a 72-game season was more like 20 or 21 games missed, as opposed to 19 in a regular season. And that moves the border a little bit farther up the table. Where, again, in an 82-game season, you can probably hold guys... Into that 75 range, where uh, in a 72 game season, someone missing six weeks, you probably only you probably only hold through like about sixty-five or seventy. You probably shave about half around there. And then similarly, in an eight week absence, again, it just becomes more pronounced in the shorter season. If you go to an eight week absence, which again, I'll just I'll I'll keep doing the the math on air. An eight-week absence on a normal season is about 26 games missed. An eight-week absence in the quick season is like 28. Either way, you're talking about a crap ton of games on the shelf. 28 games out of 72, they're playing 44. Uh, 26 out of 82, they're playing 56. So it's a little bit different, but again, you're comparing it to the, the overall value. Uh, Looking at guys that were in that neck of the woods two years ago, this was all the way back when Chris Paul was still a a member of the Houston Rockets. He actually played 58 games as number 21. And we all remember that was like the downfall of Chris Paul. He was still inside the top 50, missing 24 games. It wasn't quite the full eight weeks, but it was pretty close. And if you want to move a little bit farther down the board and look for guys that played games in the 50s, uh, you get to Otto Porter, who missed 26 games. That's pretty much right on the number we were looking for. He was top 40 on a per-game basis, and he was number 102 by totals. So it really is that top 40 range for eight weeks, like we had talked about. And in the 72-game in the season, it was just a, t- a tiny bit in front of that, like top 35. So that's the adjustment. It it wasn't a huge one. I'm I'm glad we did this. I know we didn't. It's not going to be a big change coming from today's podcast, but it is important to know that the things we're learning from this shortened season they basically do apply to the more normal, slightly slower-paced season. The other thing I want to talk about briefly today, and this may run into tomorrow's podcast, is what about like when which guy? There's the right word. You can do this, Dan. Which guy are you dropping if you have multiple players injured? Is it the better per-game guy who's out longer, or is it the lesser per-game guy who's out shorter? And again, it really does come down to math. It's a case-by-case basis. But what we've been doing the last, really, two days on this podcast, not so much on Thursday because that was really more about storytelling, what we've done yesterday and today is breakdown really when guys by totals fall outside the top 100? How many games does a guy have to miss, depending on how good they are per game, to fall outside the top 100? So hopefully, we actually know the answer to this question already. I think we solved this question with the research we've already done. We put these cutoffs in place over the last two days. To make those types of decisions. So, okay, uh, if a guy in the top 90 range is missing four weeks, he's probably going to fall roughly to 95 to 100. If a guy in the 70 range is missing six weeks, he's probably going to fall to the edge of the top 100. So if that happens at the exact same time in your league, then you really do have a coin flip. You can drop either of them, and you'll have basically the same value from that player over the course of the entire season. You're probably weighing how much season is left when those different guys come back. You probably end up dropping the guy out longer if it's later in the season. You probably drop the guy out shorter if it's earlier in the season because you want the guy putting up big numbers come head-to-head playoff time if you can get there. It's a coin flip, though. But the important thing to learn here is you're making a call based on numbers. If those two guys got hurt at the exact same time, one of them would play about two weeks more than the other the rest of the way, and you have to run the math each individual time. The only way we can use this precise cutoff that we've discovered is if the injuries happened on the first day of the season. Because then when they came back, they'd each have... The total remaining games to go, and they'd have the re- the same value the rest of the way that's how that would work, like if that happened, if both guys were hurt to start the year and guy player b player a missed the first six weeks of the season, so he had uh approximately what the hell did we say about sixty three games to work with after that, and player B was going to miss the first four weeks of the season, so he was going to have about sixty nine ish to 70 games to work with the rest of the way, then you'd know they're going to have almost the exact same value the rest of the season. But fantasy does not exist in a vacuum. Injuries happen in the middle of the year. They don't get injured at the same time, usually, although this season they did. And they're probably not going to come back on exactly their timeline. And some of these guys are going to sit out games the rest of the way. So there's a lot of other factors that you're going to have to pull into this stuff. What I want you guys to take away from this discussion, and we've probably gone as far as we need to go on this one, so we can pivot into something else, uh, starting in on tomorrow's show. maybe we'll do maybe we'll do one show midweek here that's that's focused exclusively on the playoffs. I don't know. We've got a lot of things to cover here in the off season, plenty more lessons to, to go. but I, what I want you guys to take away as the main conclusions from the last two days of fantasy analysis on ruthlessness is that number one, yeah, I mean, there's, there's never going to be a point at which you're like, oh, well, these two guys went down, this guy went down for four weeks, this one went down for six, and he's exactly three rounds earlier in a per-game rank than this guy, so I'll drop this one. It's never going to work like that. You're going to have to look and see when the guys are going to be coming back, what kind of value they can bring you after that marker, because with every passing week, the guy who's out longer becomes the worst choice by a little bit more. You guys know what I'm saying here? So let's say there's 12 weeks left in the season. The top 70 guy who's going to be out for six weeks is going to be a top 70 player for six weeks when he comes back. The top 90 guy is going to be a top 90 player for eight weeks when he comes back. That's actually a really big deal. Because now you're talking about a much larger... See, this is where percentages creep in. You're talking about a much larger percentage advantage for the guy who's out less time. The guy who comes back with only six weeks to go, he can only play about 19 to 20 games total. The guy that comes back with eight weeks to go can play about 26 games the rest of the way. 26 games at a top 90 clip is better than 19 games at a top 70 clip, even though, even though one guy only missed two weeks more than the other, and what we studied over an entire season suggests that those two guys may have the same value for the entire season. But that's not the way it works every day you move through the year. You know what? I think I want to give this topic a full day. Let's go into that one tomorrow. Our topic on tomorrow's show we'll be comparing timelines on injured players at different junctures during the season to help us make these ruthlessness calls. I think we need to be better about this. I think this is one of the things I did the worst this year, so that's why we're spending extra time on it here during the offseason. And hey, if you guys want to get down on some of these bets that I've been suggesting, you should probably do it with our buddies over at mybookie.ag with promo code HOOPBALL, H-O-O-P-B-A-L-L, not to be confused with our my, our Manscaped promo code, which is hoopball a l l two zero. The code for our buddies at mybookie.ag opens up a bunch of different deposit bonuses should you go that direction. But as I've said before on this pod, if you're thinking about opening up an account over there, bug me first. Okay? Hit me first. And I may have a prize for you. And when I say may, I mean will. I will have a prize for you. That's uh, mybookie.ag. Okay, one more day on ruthlessness tomorrow. I, I thought maybe we could do that part quickly, but I think we need to get into the numbers on it as well. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit... It's going to be a little dry. I'm warning you guys. Tomorrow's show is going to be a little bit dry, but I, I do think that it's going to be extremely helpful for understanding how we compare those injured players in head-to-head leagues. And then maybe we'll talk about Roto a little bit again by later in the week. Who knows? Maybe there'll be time to go to Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm Dan Vesperus guys. Thanks so much for listening here as we roll through the fantasy offseason. Day 7. <laughs> Told you I was going to count. I really shouldn't do it. This is Fantasy NBA today, a hoop ball presentation. Have a great Tuesday everybody. Enjoy the ball games. Catch you tomorrow.